Hi, everyone. It's Nika, the founder of Urban Remedy, welcoming you to the You Are Love podcast, inspiring health through food, lifestyle, and making conscious choices. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the You Are Love podcast. I'm super excited to be talking to one of my favorite people to talk to today, Kane Carroll. Kane is a wild mystic and a rebel spiritual teacher whose embodiment of radical presence and teaching on awakened consciousness offer a fresh and much needed blueprint for the new humanity that we yearn for. He is the architect of clear, bright teachings that invite seekers back into intimacy, the sacredness of life, and co-creator of innate medicine one of my favorite places as well. So welcome, Kane. Thank you so much for um, being back with us again. It's great to be here, Nika. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So we were having a conversation a couple weeks ago, and I think something was going on with me. And we, and you were, I loved everything that you were talking about. And I was like, I think we should do a podcast on this. And so I, th- I was thinking about it. I think we'll call this navigating the divide because there's so many divisive issues going on in the world, whether it's climate change or political issues or other mandates or things that people are really passionate about. And I've always found myself being one of those people who I get really worked up if I feel like there's um, some injustice happening to a person or a group of people. And, And I over the years, I found myself, you know, going down some rabbit holes and even making myself like so stressed out about certain things. And so I was bringing that up to you. And I loved your ideas or your practices around these issues. So I, I wanted you to share that today with the listeners, because I feel like we all could use some direction of how to, you know, move our energy into a positive, something positive rather than just sitting in like anger, or frustration or whatever it is that we're feeling. Yeah, it's a really important point and I'm I'm glad I'm glad you wanted to take time to converse just about that because I think it it's something that operates in the background and and we're we're sort of we think that we're called into engaging with this this kind of emergency landscape and that we don't we don't have the time or the the luxury of the time to kind of back up and talk about this. I think it is really important because what it enables us to do, and this is a big part of the practice of what we would call the clear ride teachings, is to go backwards, take a backwards step, to borrow the phrase from Dogen, um, to take a backwards step and, and actually look at the way that we look, to look at our view. And, and this would be like the analogy I think works best is that it would be like taking off our reading glasses or taking off our, our seeing glasses or even our sunglasses and, and looking at the lenses to see what color tint they have. Are they clean? Is there oil smudges on them? Because the world that we're seeing appears to us a certain way based on the lens that we're looking through. In terms of our enculturation and in terms of our habituated ways of going about doing things, we would say that this is our working worldview or our mental framework. Um, I just call it view. And so it's really important to work with, to work with our view. And one of the basic things that we begin to see when we start to look at our view, pause and kind of go, hey, the way I'm doing things is informed by the way I see things. And again, this is not something that's commonly talked about because there's 
when we're in that kind of emergency mode of of just dealing with all the problems of the world, so to speak, then we don't stop and look at the perspective, right, that we're coming from. So if we if we can make that connection and begin to understand, okay, the way I'm going about approaching this topic is really heavily influenced by the way that I'm seeing, by my by the biases that I have, by the habituated views that I hold, then then I want to shift those things or at very least take inventory of those things before I put so much focus on what it is that I think I'm about to engage all my energy in doing. And this starts us on a very important contemplative process. Um, and, and, and again, it can be scary and it can be quite confronting to do that because one of the ways that views operate is that they operate in the background as an assumption of the way things just are. And that's why confirmation bias is such a hot topic these days, because what we know about what we know about what we think we know is that once we've integrated a certain view, we just assume that that's the way reality is. And then we, we look for information that confirms our assumptions. And it's like the best worst aspect of the operating system of human mind <laughs> and and so you know we know yeah. that you know we know that algorithms feed on that we know that social media feeds on that we know that political political gaming feeds on that idea right you just once you establish a particular view for for particular um, populace of people you just want to play on comfort confirming that view so you build up the strength of that bias and what it demonstrates is it demonstrates our tendency to see things through what I would call the primary distorted view or the primary distortion, which is the distortion of separation, the distortion of division. It's way down deep, deep, deep in our basic assumptions about the way the world operates. And then we see it magnified in moments when there's kind of political pressure or you know, environmental pressure, social pressure, um, pressure among the, you know, among any kind of group of, of people with different experience. Um, so I think today, our, what we're going to do, hopefully, is look at that particular view and, and all the other views that might be informed by that. But one of the most base level views is this view of separation. So I, I hope we can look look at that and ask ask the listeners to actually take a look, take off our glasses and see and look at this particular view. I, I love that. And when you were talking, I, I had this memory pop up of being with my grandparents and my grandfather was in World War II. And I remember him saying, and this is this was kind of like a little aha moment for me. He said, Nika, he goes, when I was in the war, because I was I was doing something in school that was creating like a donation for some sort of nonprofit. And I said, oh, I think we're going to donate to the Red Cross. And he was like, I've got to tell you something. <laughs> when I was in the war, he loved talking about the war. Um, you know, when I was in the war, Red Cross was there and they were not helping us. And he had all his stories about, you know, what happened with Red Cross. And I'm not saying they're good or bad. But um, it, and then I, and I thought to myself, well, how could this be? People donate money to this organization and that, that's what they do. They help people. And then I'm not talking specifically about Red Cross anymore. But then if, you know, if you go and look at how much, 
you know, specific nonprofits actually use to help people or feed people or whatever it is, you know, some of them, it's like 3% and like 97% is going to like structuring fees or, you know, people, you know, doing whatever they're doing. Um, And so I remember learning about this and being like, but how could this be? Like people have these commercials of like children starving and like feeding them and, um, And I remember feeling so angry and just like, you know, befuddled, like, I can't even believe that somebody would have this sort of organization and not actually be, you know, helping, you know, veterans or children or whatever it is. And that was one of the first times that I ever, you know, really had that experience of why, like, why is this? And then, you know, as I have gotten older, I mean, there's obviously a lot of other examples, but that was my first example you know, into kind of questioning the narrative of like, why, why, like, why would people do this? Or, you know, um, and I think that we're, you know, indoctrinated once we start school of like, what's good and what's bad and what's right and what's wrong, you know, and who are the thought leaders that we're, you know, learning are, you know, are correct, even if it has to do with history or historical facts, um, and so it's, it's almost like a journey to go on, like to take off your glasses. Cause you, it's, it is uncomfortable and it doesn't really make you feel good when you learn these kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. That, and I think that's, that's one of the reasons why we, we tend to want to just add more information that confirms our current assumptions because it's painful to, to make those shifts, to make those changes there's a kind of discomfort, a kind of existential discomfort to it. And yeah, I mean, this plays into, this contemplation goes really deep into what's underneath all of that is a kind of grasping to find a solidified sense of abiding self. So it gets, this contemplation can lead all the way to recognition of the fluidity of life versus the solidity of the concept of an abiding self. And I don't think we have time to go that far into unpacking that all the way, but it's important to mention because part of what triggers us is not whether we're going to like clutch onto the red side or the blue side of the political, you know, the, 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 the political field, or we're going to, you know, clutch to this, this side or that side of any of the hot topics right now. It underneath that is, is a kind of need to find a kind of abiding, a place to park our eye, our sense of identity, to park it for a while so that the the actual terrain of the living world, which is changing, doesn't feel as, as raw to us, as wild to us. So one of the things that we use to try to get traction with that is the idea of this and that is the idea of us and them, right? Or the idea of some kind of fundamental ultimate truth to, to, to answer any of the questions like right or wrong or morality or, or whatnot. Um, but, under, but underneath that is, and, and the reason why it gets so impassioned, the reason why you see when, when you push someone to, to sort of think differently on, on one side of an issue, right? Like you could say they, they become fundamentally defensive of their position, whether that's religion or politics. Um, what happens is that the person feels that their actual identity is being threatened. 
and it becomes an existential defense. And it's not logical at that point. I mean, you, you, we, we've seen this happen, you know, on, on all the different sides of the hot topics that have been going on, in the, especially the last couple of years. To look at our own experience, and this is what I ask, you know, I ask the listeners to do, um, Dr. Rangel and I ask our patients to do it when, when we're working with patients in, in the innate medicine clinic and we're getting really deep into healing and we start to find areas that are really painful, what, what we discover is that often some of our most basic views about the way we just assume life to be were inherited from our caretakers as, as children. They were just integrated into our basic kind of intellectual operating system before we actually critically chose to do that or thought about them. And then we just build on that. And we find that there's a strong correlation between some of those views and struggling with healing and wellness at at different levels in our life, whether that's physical or emotional or relational. Um, So, you know, we, we, we incorporate this work in, in, in the realm of healing as well. So when we begin to look at it and we begin to go, oh man, I, I learned that this particular way of relating to the world is just the way it is. And that was part of my safety island that I clutched to as a child in circumstances that didn't feel safe or regulated. And then when it's challenged, it feels like it's going to take away like our safety raft. What about when we like identify with another person's suffering even where it's like we hear stories, right? So the, and the stories are what is going to kind of back up our egoic thought forms, you know, to, to reinforce whatever story we believe or narrative that we believe. And then it's like in that identification, we're, we're like latching on to somebody else's pain or somebody else's story almost creating like that as our reality does that make sense yeah exactly so you know let's just use a a common example we've we've all seen happening in the last years is like with the political the political positioning right it's like so the basic assumption behind the behind the terrain like we have this bipartisan game here in america right as if as if there are only two positions one could assume and be impactful or be informed or something, right? Of course, that isn't true. And the living terrain of life itself, there are multiple different ways of approaching any particular thing, but that's the current game that we've set up. It's an example of the underlying view of our society, which is, which is a view of separation, a view of division. There has to be us and them. Okay, so as you're saying, like the identification with the suffering, right? So we're, we're connecting with like, our own difficulty and the difficulty of what we see as like the cause of all the problems in the world. And because we're holding a view, we're wearing glasses that have a kind of, have a kind of uh, line etched in them. I call it divided mind, a kind of line etched in them. And you're either standing on this side of the line with us, or you're standing on that side of the line with them. And us and them represent the two categories of right and wrong. And there can only be one right and there can only be one wrong. And so clearly us has to be right, right? We're always going to ascribe the right position as the position we're currently identifying with. That's how our kind of self-making mechanism works. 
right? Because our we perceive that our survival is based on being right. And so we have to position the other. They could have different skin color, have different sexual orientation, have different political ideas, have different ideas about how medicine should interact with, with the populace or whatnot. But as soon as we've made that division, we now project onto the other everything that we imagine is the cause of our pain. And we project onto them all of that. And then we're able to relate to them as if they're the cause of everything that is painful and wrong. Right. So now all of a sudden you, and once that gets triggered, once it gets ramped up enough, we're in an emotional reactivity state where we're actually recalling subconsciously, we're recalling our deep pains from, from before our nervous system was really, was really developed, right? We're, we're, we're drawing upon pains that happened when we were really young, maybe even in utero, we're drawing upon ancestral pains, family pains, you know, as it's a a buzzword now, but traumas that we've experienced. And we're, we're projecting the cause of all of that onto a person who's other or a group of people who, who are, you know, flying the opposite color politically, so to speak. And, and, and that moment, if we pause that moment, it demonstrates the very underlying force of the view of separation, because we lose touch with everything else about that other person. We lose touch with their humanity. We lose touch with all of the nuances of their, of their life, who they are. And in that state, we, we can't, we can't, actually see the wholeness of life anymore we can't experience it we're we're in a state of extreme separation and in that state the great irony of of it is that when we live in that state we actually perpetuate all of the pains that that we feel we we actually ramp them up and perpetuate them we we um we live them out because all of the pains that, that we're drawing upon happened in moments of separation where we didn't get our deepest needs met. We didn't have inclusivity. We didn't feel the kindness, the acceptance, the love that we needed, right? That's, that's why it hurt, right? Emotionally. Mm-hmm. And so we end up. It's so true. Right. Have you, you see that in, in around you and then, you know, and, and I'm, I'm not speaking about this as if I'm separate from it. I, you know, I, I find myself doing the same thing, but it's, it's painful to, to do that. Yeah. Well, what I found is, you know, in a couple areas that I've been working, you know, with you and Dr. Wrangle on, um, having this awareness has really been a huge um, learning for me because when you even question it a little bit, um, you know, I had a, a um, issue going on in my life. I won't get into the details where I was you know, it was triggering all the feelings in me of feeling one out of control of my reality and my family's reality, and then identifying with other people's stories and and the right and the wrong. Like, how could somebody have the power to do X, Y, and Z? And you helped me to step back from that and 
take a different perspective instead of being, you know, in the fight. Okay. Like it was almost, I was already setting myself up for failure because I was in the fight of like, okay, this is what I've got to do. And I've got to prepare and I'm mad and I'm angry. This isn't happening to me. And this is what happened to this person. And this is the story of what happened to somebody else. Um, But instead, you know, I got to back up 10 steps, take a deep breath and come back into myself and, look at the situation. It's like I had an opportunity to look at the situation from a different viewpoint, I guess, with through different glasses and almost like manifest a different reality by doing that. Because there's a story, I think there's like a collective story of, you know, there's something bigger out there that's going to get me or, you know, something, you know, along those lines that I'm sure a lot of us have. And it's almost like a... Um, a letting go of the outcome, but being able to be present in your center, which actually creates the outcome a lot of the time that you want to happen because you're not stuck in that thought form of failure or fighting or anger, if, if that makes sense. It's an amazing opportunity to have a different perspective or, or you know, look at things. I have a friend who you know, he calls himself like a mind architect and he is all about, you know, um, our ability to change our reality. But I feel like the work that you're doing and what I've learned um, about this specific topic, it, it kind of does that in a certain way because you're, 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 you're not in the flow. And I have a question. I was wondering, do you think, I feel like the division is almost like a tactic to keep us from really finding our own answers and like truly connecting to our own truth. If we're always like in a divide or there's a right and there's a wrong, then it's like we're identifying with whatever those things are rather than, you know, coming back into our own selves and, you know, creating our own power from our, you know, our own innate knowing. Do you think that's a purposeful thing or is it just, I mean, kind of like politically and through school, I don't mean there's some bad person out there, um, you know, making all of these decisions, but it almost seems like the way our society is set up, it's really set up for us to be in division and, you know, look like it be in that place of right or wrong. It's one of the core assumptions. What, what I, what I would call one of the core myths of our society is, is the, the basic idea of separation. And so it's so pervasive that we don't even see it until we begin to contemplate our own view. Because you can begin to see it out there, but until you look at your own view, you're seeing what you're contemplating through the view. And so this is, you know, this demonstrates itself in all of the fields of human civilization. So for example, conventional science holds the view that the observer and that which is being observed have some kind of fundamental separation. Quantum science doesn't hold that view, um, but the physics that are assumed to be operative in the universe are very much about control of separate entities, you know, called extraneous variables, right? And that in that that view informs conventional science and conventional 
modern medicine. And what we're seeing is that there are huge blind spots in that view. And they're now starting to demonstrate the impact of holding that view is such that we would approach, for example, patient care from a perspective of having fundamental separation, then the parts are all separate. So then you get specialization, you get reductionism, and you get the manipulation of parts without a congruent understanding of how any one part of an individual is related to the rest of them. And and then what about how that individual is an integral part of the living tissue of the natural world? So we, we if we just zoom in and look at medicine, we see, oh, wow, well, what has become modern conventional medicine? The, the reason it operates in that way is because it holds the view of separation. Once you have the view of separation, you have you have reductionism and a mechanistic approach to everything, right? So the basic assumption is that, well, if we just remove your gallbladder, for example, it has no other impact on, it doesn't have any impact on your tibialis anterior or your pituitary gland, because why, why, why would you have that idea? Because the view is a view of separation. But of course, if you, if, if there's an impact on the ocean water, on the southern tip of the Indian subcontinent, the idea that it's not going to have an impact on the coast of England is ridiculous. It's one, it's one body of water, right? So we, we know if you dump a bunch of plastic off, you know, off the coast of the tip of, of the Indian subcontinent, it might end up in England, it might end up in Hawaii, right? And so the body is the same way. And so if we look at that view, we can see it in medicine. If we look at that view, we could see it in politics, right? The idea that there's two systems that are somehow fundamentally against each other and each one holds the right position, it's not only impossible in terms of the physics of how the world actually works, it's exceedingly naive. And so there's no there's nobody to point the finger at, but once we start to understand the view, we realize, wow, it is really a collective assumption. And a really powerful place to start, and I, and I could say that I had been asked to contemplate this view really early on by my mother, because I think you, you and I had talked about, about this in a prior conversation, what for me, the place that I hit, and when you were talking about your experience, you know, with the nonprofit and realizing that I, I was thinking like, oh, this is like, for me, this is like the righteous indignation story. It's the story where it's yeah, like, yeah. I'm just, that's fundamentally wrong. And for me, it was the Holocaust. It was like the activity, it was learning history and being like, that's just not okay. You know, even though the guy's dead, I, I want to like kill that guy, that guy Hitler, like he did every, everything he did was wrong. And I, I couldn't like <laughs> yeah. let it go. I was so worked up about it. And my mom was just like, look at your state right now. Your state is now you want to kill people. Now now you're so full of anger and so full of rage that you want to like go kill people for killing people. Like look at look look at yourself, you know, and I was like, you know, I knew she was right, but I was too pissed off to admit it. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's it's such a good point. And and you see that today. I mean literally there's I I hear it 
like weekly where somebody is so pissed that somebody said something about this politician or that politician that they want to kill them or if somebody didn't do something that they thought was right and and these are and, and these are like woke, well-educated people that are so upset about something because somebody doesn't believe what they believe in that yet they want to kill them or banish them from society or whatever. And then you're like, well, the answer that's coming out of this, yeah, it's like violence, anger, separ- more separation, which is exactly what you're talking about. And my dad was a Vietnam veteran and he, you know, was very, I think, opened up me it opened me up to a lot of different ways of thinking because he you know went to Vietnam and when he got back he was always like Nika he was always like you know he was like I went to war thinking that you know I was like fighting for my country and he was like I went there and you know saw people being killed and saw children being killed and he came back and had PTSD and he was like I don't want to be a part of this anymore. And I was like, I don't want to be a part of the right and the wrong and the judgment. And he, you know, for years, like lived off the grid and never wanted to put money in a bank. And like, you know, he was like the opposite spectrum of the ultra separation judgmental, you know, he went farther on the, the other side. Um, but it, it always did, you know, make me question. He's like, I thought I was going over there for a certain reason, but I went over there and like killing people is not the answer and like ruining people's lives. And, you know, I think that happens with lots of wars. And I guess war is probably the example of like the harshest separation. It's like when you have somebody, you know, when you're going somewhere to kill other people and destroy them based on, you know, your different Yeah. Viewpoints. And I think what's difficult in this era, like since the Vietnam War, is that the warfare, and I'm putting up my air quotes here, the warfare has become way more subtle. Like we use way less machine guns, but like, but the division and the warfare goes like all the way into the household, right? Like, and and now it's demonstrated during the pandemic, two people who've loved each other for 20 years now hate each other because each is on a different position of whether or not to wear a mask or whether or not to get this vaccine or that vaccine or no vaccine or support this political person or that political person or check the data or it could be like any position on anything and all of a sudden you have you have households that are you know fracturing you and then you you look at like the the um to people positioning on on issues of race or sexual orientation or whatever it is. And so the warfare has gone into this layer of our being that is like, it's existential. It's like, it's at the level of consciousness, which demonstrates how deep, how deep the assumption of division is and, and has been for for most of what we can recall as as recorded human history, I mean, certainly there are eras and places that were based much more on a cooperative model. Usually those societies are matriarchal, uh, a cooperative model between human beings and the rest of the living world, the larger than human world of which humans are an integral part and upon which we rely for everything, right? And I'm saying that because the model of separation holds as one of its unspoken axioms that humans are separate from the rest of nature and we can just do whatever we want to nature. Right. And that's how we came about with ridiculous ideas as, as a, as a humanity, as 
you know, people who have a different color of skin or from the other side of the mountain, they're not even human. This, this idea was held by, by many factions of, of humans throughout time, right? That they're not, they're like a completely different kind of entity. And therefore we're not obligated to treat them with respect or let alone the plants and the animals and, and gosh, the viruses, like <laughs> heaven forbid, we actually respect microscopic organisms, right? right? But that's a big topic. <laughs> it's become almost like technology. You know, when people are in a fight about wearing a mask or not wearing a mask or Biden or Trump or whatever it is, it's like then you're going into the kind of information gathering stage. And it's like, okay, well, if I found this person saying this, and then my friend found this person saying this, and then you're just like sending things back to each other to prove your point. But it's like, if you keep digging deeper, like who is writing X, Y, and Z and why it's, it's like, we're still looking for somebody else to get, to prove our answer is correct. or Our position is correct. And it's still creating more separateness because we're just looking outside of ourselves for the answer or the yeah, proof. Yeah, exactly. You know? And this, and then it's just these fights become correct. endless. And, and this is this is where, and this is probably going to be quite unpopular, but this is where the demonstration of the view of separation presented as again, I'm putting up my my air quotes here, presented as science is a replica of the vertical the vertical orientation of religion in other words science conventional science is a replica of the christian worldview of an all-pervading all-knowing disembodied entity that can't be seen or touched but somehow knows everything and is always right and everything that's in opposition to it is wrong we now import that exact view, throw throw God out the window, and input data in God's place. And data are these data is another disembodied entity that can ever really be pinned down. No one ever really knows where it's coming from because everyone quoting the data is quoting something that that they don't actually have their finger on. They're not tasting it. They're not touching it. And we don't exactly know how, how is the data arrived at, right? Oh, well, what are some of the assumptions of the, of the process of getting data? That the one getting the data is separate from the data, that all of the, quote, unimportant aspects that are present in the experiment are tossed out that the data, that the extraneous variables are isolated, the important stuff is drawn to the forefront and then extrapolated out to a population as if experiments can be done in some kind of controlled vacuum and are not a part of the living, changing tissue of the cosmos, which quantum physics and every other wisdom tradition that's ever existed has disproved that and it's falling apart. But this is why this is why we can throw, you know, studies back and forth to defend our position. And, and we're exactly doing the same thing as sort of like, you know, the, the Catholics and Protestants bombing each other, right? Or the, or the Christians invading the Muslims or the Muslims invading the Christians. Or when, when, we, when we hold the source of our experience, the ultimate legitimacy of our experience, as existing outside of ourself in some kind of disembodied entity, whether it's God or data, 
we are losing touch with our actual humanness, which exists in the flesh, standing on the planet, breathing air, drinking water. It exists as a sensate experience, as the actual wisdom of life is expressing as the physical embodiment of the cosmos as a human experience. It's not somewhere else. And it doesn't mean that there's no place for belief or faith or data. It just means that if we frame it in the perspective of our lived experience and don't look to it for the ultimate source of what is right or true, we're now not expressing the view of separation. We're actually in a relationship with our lived experience. And when we do that, like you said earlier, we have a really different impact. We have a really different course that we set set onto and we get different results. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I mean, it, and when you look at it from like an environmental point of view, when you were saying that, I was thinking it's almost like, like the use of Roundup, for example, like you can do research or I've, I've been on panels with, um, you know, scientists from Monsanto and, you know, they were like, you yeah, know, glyphosate and Roundup, it does not cause cancer. We Here's like 300 studies that show, you know, and then you look at who does the studies and usually it's funded by them. Um, but then you see, you know, you know, 20 years later, you know, what it's done to our soil and degrading our soil and maybe it's killed a bunch of weeds, but then it's also killed our soil and a lot of the microorganisms that create, you know, the microbiome of the earth and, you know, all of the things that we need for the butterflies and the bees and and um, so it's like you could have data and you could look at science, but it's always changing. And until it's been a certain amount of time, we don't really know how it's going to affect, you know, Mother Earth and this living organism, as you said, that we all live on that, you know, you were just saying you could drop something somewhere on the planet and it's going to affect, you know, some place on the other side of the planet. It's like we don't know, but we're so focused on, you know, just these parts, you know, it's like, how are we going to, you know, grow as much wheat or corn or soy as we can, um, and not have the weeds come in. And like, we've done that for so long in this country and ruined so much of our soil. And now we've realized, God, that the answer really is regenerative farming. And it's how all of the pieces work together, you know, the animals and the animal poop and the right kind of water irrigation and, you know, changing the crops and, you know, all of these things, which are so beautiful, which are all like the natural processes that have been since the beginning of time. And it seems like it comes back to like, that's usually kind of the answer. It's like when you're looking at just the the part without really understanding the whole, I feel like we, my dad and bringing my dad back in, he always, this is not a really great thing to say, but he always used to go, Nika, he would be like, humans are the foulest species on earth. It's so true in so many ways. Like if we just left so many, if we left systems alone, you know, the way they are going, we would have, we'd probably be in a, a much better place than we yeah. are right now. But I think a lot of people are waking up and there's, you know, the work of people like Zach Bush and, you know, a lot of regenerative farmers, it's really shifting the paradigm and the way that we think about things. So let's talk about, like examples, like what are some tools that you could give us to when we're feeling the separation or we're feeling, you know, so pissed off at somebody else, you know, because they don't believe or they're not doing what we think they should do, or, you know, they don't have the same. My mom was telling me a couple of days ago, she's like, I can't tell my friend, you know, this one thing that I think or I saw because she, she won't talk to anybody who believes X, Y, or Z. So like, how, how do we get out of that? Like what, What's the, the practice? basic 
the basic practice is to realize when we're doing that, when we are triggered to look directly at the assumption we have that there's solidity in our position. And it's why I said earlier that because if we don't mention this, it, it, it can be really scary and painful and quite startling that doing this is going to touch the part of us that is afraid that we don't have as solid of an abiding I as an abiding self as we imagine that we have because okay now i'm triggered now i now i just i have to have a fundamentally separate position from somebody who holds opposite ideas and i find myself in a very defensive state what am i defending so the question becomes what am i actually defending what do I actually what do I know for sure is true in my own experience? And what, what happens when we do this is we actually have to start checking the difference between what we imagine we know and our actual embodied experience. And as we go through that process, what we start to learn is what we imagine that we know, in other words, our conceptual beliefs, they're always hanging in the air. They're not actually grounded in anything that we can experience in our body most of the time because they're dependent on thoughts. Thoughts are always changing. So you get down to, well, I'm standing on the ground right now. I'm breathing. It's sometime after breakfast and before lunch. I'm starting to feel hungry. Like you get down to something, well, how does that have anything to do with my position on the pandemic or politics? It's like it has everything to do with it because now all of a sudden I'm standing on the same ground as the person who holds different views from me. I'm not even sure if I can believe my own views because they're all based in bundles of thought concepts that are changing and dependent on other bundles of thought concepts that are all changing. And so could I find any ultimate truth in that? Not really. Could I find any, like, could I find my existence in that? No. Okay, so where, where am I actually? I'm, I'm, I'm right where I'm sitting, right where I'm standing. I'm a human being. I'm breathing air. And now I start to look across the table at that other person, and they're also starting to get hungry because it's almost lunchtime. And they're also concerned about the health of their, their mother, and they're wondering if their kids are going to get into college and the temperature is dropping, so they also need a jacket. And all of a sudden, I share a lot in common with the person who might hold different views from me. And I'm not separate from them at all in the vast majority of ways that we're experiencing being human. In fact, we're really, really similar. And now all of a sudden, I just have less tightness around what I imagine I know, what I think I know. And I have more understanding that Maybe I don't know what I think I know with as much certainty. So then it's called not holding fixed views. Now all of a sudden, I can find some sense of solidity in the fact that I'm just standing on the earth and I'm breathing air and it's okay, I'm just human. It's okay to not know exactly what's going on. It's okay to not have an ultimate position because I don't need one. It's, it's enough to just notice that I'm standing here breathing. 
And, and it, it loosens the grip we have on our ideas, our positions, our concepts, and allows us to entertain ideas and concepts with a kind of openness, a kind of playfulness. And this is the practice of what I call not holding fixed views. And every time we find ourselves getting really triggered about a position or a view, if we apply this practice, we'll realize, well, you could still vote Democrat or Republican, or you could still choose to get vaccinated or not, or take this medication or, or not. But you, you're actually able to engage with the whole process in a way that employs your whole humanness, your whole intelligence and wisdom. And, and you're, you're much more mobile. You can go, oh, well, that's interesting. And then you can hear the opposite information. Oh, that's interesting too. Let me, let me kind of see what it is that's my, my own experience. Um, and, and that righteous indignation that you and I both remember very vividly experiencing, it doesn't, it doesn't take us over anymore. Because in other words, I'm not that confident that what I think I know is actually that solid and reliable. I'm not that attached to my own ideas. I love that. So let me ask you, so my ego, now I'm hearing this and you, and you've told me this before and I love it and I've applied it and believe it. But I, even when you're saying that my ego is starting to go, okay, well, what about what's going to happen if, if I have a feeling about something that would you know, affect my job or, you know, my child going to school or something like that. Like, how do you deal with things that are tangible and consequential in your life um, without getting into like the fight or the um, getting into the separation? Like when it's something that's tangibly could really affect you, how do you navigate that? Is it the same thing? It's all. It's exactly the same thing. So, at the level of the actual experience, we are in a relationship, an intimate relationship, with everything that's arising in our in our field of experience, right? So, but when we do this division, the red and the blue want to have a wall between them, right? We, We we want to build a wall on the border between this country and the and the beautiful country and the beautiful people who are just to the south of this of this country, right? It's ridiculous because you build a wall on top of the land. The land itself is continuous between all countries. The water itself is continuous between all continents, right? And the lived experience is continuous. So so we have to to be to employ the most the most amount of our intelligence and the wisdom of the whole living tissue is to be an intimate relationship. It's to not play the game of separation. So, and, and I learned this, you know, in the martial, in my martial arts training, my, one of my um, sifus said to me, and it, it really was hard for me to accept this until I, until I really put it to the test of my own experience. But he said, the safest place to be in a fight is the most dangerous place. And I'm like, what, what do you mean? Where, where's the most dangerous place? And he said, you tell me. And I said, well, like really close in, like, like right in it, like touching the person, like embracing the person. And he said, yeah, well, like how, how else could you read the situation? If you're, if you're, if you're like trying to get out of the situation and break contact with it, 
you don't know what is all happening within the situation. So it's super scary to like, to lean in and engage. And, but it's in that place that you understand your relationship with the thing that you imagine you're fighting with. And if you're not interested in fighting, you can guide the whole thing out of fighting. And lo and behold, this is proven to be true so many times with, you know, in college with drunk people at, at, in a bar who wanted to fight. It's like, if you're, if you're willing to relate on your own terms, like I'm not interested in fighting. My disinterest in fighting is stronger than the other person's drunken interest in fighting. I win. And the result is we're not going to fight. What's the difference then between acquiescing and not being in your truth and yes. not fighting. So when you know we I mean? just when we when we sort of swallow the situation as separate from us and out of our control and fixed, what we've done is we've believed a view. So when we acquiesce or we or we just sort of like give up, and we just have this this kind of um, this nihilistic sense. Oh, that's just the way it is, right? What we've done is we've said, I'm separate from this living terrain. My actions have no power and there's nothing I can do. That's a view. If we check our immediate experience, we find that's actually not the case. I'm exhaling air into the room I'm sitting, which is having an impact on the air someone's going to breathe three days from now in Zimbabwe. Like, right? I mean, the fact is, we are both affected by and affecting the entire living tissue of the cosmos. And we could believe we have no power, but that belief is simply a, a concept that's actually not true, right? So, so it, it comes back to our lived experience, my lived experience with what's good for my stepdaughter or what's good for finances or what's good for people in my community, right? Like you're talking about these real life situations that our best response happens when we're in the most intimate relationship with our lived experience, which is a, which is an embodied experience, right? Where I'm here in this embodied experience, I'm feeling it. And so whether we're having a conversation with someone who has different views on politics, or you're trying to deal with an issue of, of law, or you're trying to work with, um, you know, zoning or what's going to happen in the school system where your kid goes to school and create change socially. It happens at the level of the relationship, at the level of intimacy, not at the level of the fundamental opposition of beliefs. It happens at the level of relationship, which is never separation. It's always relatedness. It's always intimacy. I really believe this. And then I, but then I also go, okay, so if you, let's say something is going on at your children's school and it's whatever it is, um, just for clarification. So are we like, obviously we're going to be in our cent centers and like have the intimacy with the experience. Does that ever then include like, would the example be like, okay, maybe you show up at the school board and you're not coming from this place of like, what do you, you know, why are you doing this? This is wrong, you know, blah, blah, blah. And like defending your point or you have the opportunity to show up and be in your center and come from your place of self, which is not being in the separation of right or wrong, but just speaking your kind of intimate truth. Is exactly. that the difference? If you're, if you're trying to make a change or trying to 
use your voice, I guess, use your voice in a way in, in a real life situation where, you know, and there's, I think there's a lot of times where most, where we can do that by ourselves. Like you said, it's like, you know, drinking when we're thirsty and watching the sunrise and like really connecting with the cycles of nature. Um, But then there's other circumstances where, you know, you know, one of the things that people get most worked up about is like their children, like my kid, blah, 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 whatever. Um, So what about like an actionable, uh, could you give an example of like an actual actionable way to express that isn't in division, but it is, you know, different than just like doing it on your yeah, own. Yeah. So again, it starts with our own experience, our own embodied experience, and our conduct just in the smaller circle of of our choices, right? What it is that we're embodying and experiencing, and if we step onto that playing field, and the playing field has been set by everybody else as division. And now I have to go to the town square meeting or I have to argue with the, you know, in the court or I have to like, as soon as I start to experience that for me to get what I imagine I want. And of course I imagine that that's the right thing for me and for all of us. I imagine there's some kind of ultimate rightness to that. In other words, it's going to, it's going to help me like win. It's going to help me get what it is that I think needs to happen for everything to be okay. If I put that much pressure on it and then I enter into opposition with the ones I imagine are the cause of the reason it's not like that, I, I, I my immediate experience is one of a kind of discomfort, separation. I need to do away with their position and establish mine. And it might happen. But if we pan forward, what is the result of that? In other words, any action that is taken in the experience of playing that game of separation and holding fundamental positions, it's going to radiate that out into the atmosphere such that you have to experience more of that. This is the old example. One of my colleagues and I were in San Francisco and there was like a quote, peace rally, right? I, I think this is during the Bush administration and there's like a peace rally around around the Iraq war or the Middle East war, I forget which version of it that, that was, but we, what we witnessed was a bunch of quote, peace loving people driving frantically and screaming at each other, trying to get parking spots. People being <laughs> like, that's my parking spot. Everyone's like rushing, yelling at each other, trying to get good parking spots so they could get to the peace rally on time. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks, right? It's like, you could use violence and aggression to promote anything. Like it was just ridiculous. So it comes back to our own conduct and what it is that we're embodying. And then we can move forward and, and move toward what it is that we, we feel is true for us, knowing that that's not an ultimate position, knowing that the whole terrain of the lived, of the lived environment is changing and, and it's going to change. I'm not going to find any, security and securing that you know so here here it becomes you know we could say like oh my gosh you know on the side of the left like everything that we've worked for is now being you know taken away it's like there's 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 just the constancy of change right we're not we're not moving in some linear pattern where like you know human rights are being established in some sort of like ultimate cemented truth like we're just constantly responding 
to the circumstance doing what it is that we feel is most aligned and most true. But it's it's our inner experience that actually matters more than what legislation we get pushed forward. And that's the thing that I think is is quite often missed. So it's like you go down to the town hall, you do your voting, but you embody that which feels true and that which is not not expressing a sense of separation and opposition. And that exists in our own conduct. And it's very much the view of a wisdom tradition, right? Like this is the view that the yogis held. This is the view that, you know, is held in in all of the different mystic traditions around the world is that you you don't play the game as it's been set by those outside of you. You stay within yourself integral and whole and connected to earth and to life. And then you respond to the situation. And it might be that you have to be political or you have to, you know, you use legal instruments, but you use all of those things, maintaining that inner inner wholeness, that intrinsic wholeness, where you are inseparable from life, you are life itself expressing itself, and you're not attached to the outcome. Right? I love that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's really a practice. It's really a practice because... Um, yeah, it's we're so conditioned to like fight for what's right or, you know, like get out there like you were saying in March or or whatever. But I in my own recent experiences, you know, applying the best I could, you know, what you're talking about, I experienced such a different relationship to the issues going on in my life and such a I, I almost got to the point where the outcome didn't matter as much because I was in a place of acceptance either way. And it, it took off that, um, it ended up unexpectedly taking off the, you know, the angst or the worry or the, that kind of feeling of like fight flight where it's like, Oh my God, what's going to happen? Or, you know what I mean? And so, um, yeah, I'm excited to keep, you know, practicing this, this, um, and thank you so much for sharing all of this today. I hope people um, really try some of these um, practices or just even have an aha moment of like, oh, yeah, I didn't realize I was doing that. I think just even having that can create um, a bit of a change. Yeah, so, and I think, yeah, thank it's you. really, I'm, I'm glad we had the time to talk about it. And I think, I think at the, at the end of it all, you know, the, the invitation would be for all of us to, to enter into the real to the raw sensate feeling of our own of our own physicality and our own emotional experience with a sense of openness and a sense of curiosity and a sense of warmth and kindness and to feel our feet on the ground to feel the air in our lungs and to pay pay more attention than perhaps we usually do in 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 an environment that has been so heated to to our own humanness and to how how relational we are how we are in an intimate relationship with the solid earth under our feet and the air in our lungs and the sun and the moon and the stars and the clouds and to let this be our primary experience and then from that see what it is that feels regulated when i feel like oh i, I i'm at home in myself i feel i feel at ease where I am, and then to track that as as our compass. And when we're ramped up about something or engaged in something, we realize that we've lost touch with that, 
to come back to that and let it be a kind of homing device because it resets our baseline. It resets our baseline from that aggravation of division and fighting back to a place where we're actually in touch with what is so all of the time, what is so already, which is that we're whole, we're integral. And life itself is an integral wholeness expressing itself in in changing myriad ways and and we still have to respond and and deal with things but the basis of our experience starts to become something really different than than survival emergency or or the feeling that something's deeply missing from us and i think that that is what mm-hmm. it's yeah. so true yeah it's so true i um i know we have to wrap up but i you know, I had to do a court thing um, a few days ago and I found myself getting nervous and stuff. And then I, I went in my backyard and I actually did one of your meditations and, you know, got back into my center. And it was such a different experience um, coming from that place of what you just said, connecting to all that is and connecting, you know, to the sun, the moon, the stars, nature, Mother Earth. And when you're in a divisive situation, but you're in that place rather than really connecting to fear or division. It's, it's a much different experience, but I I think, like you said, it's a, you know, it's like a constant reminder to self or practice of just being human, you know, to be able to, to try to do that. But I just thank you so much for, you know, even bringing this um, paradigm shift or new way of thinking um, because it's definitely helped me in my process so much. So thank you so much for sharing that with everybody today. And if anybody wants to do some of your meditations, which I love because they're short, they're like seven and eight minutes, you could go to canecarol.com under resources and go to audio. I love, there's like, I love the interconnectedness and wholeness. I love coming home to love. Um, whenever I'm feeling off, I will just do those during the day and it makes such a big difference. So I just wanted to mention that. Thank you. Yeah. It's really, it's makes me smile to know that those resources are helpful for you and that, that you are using them in the moments, like you were saying, like, give me a real example. Cause it's like, all of us are dealing with life, you know, that's coming at us full speed. So to know that it, it works in those moments when real things need to happen. That's, that's great. I've, I find that's the same for me. Like I have to practice every day, you know, it's not, it's not something like I could just realized, yeah. you know, one day in India, it's like, this is a lifelong, <laughs> yeah. practice, you know, like I, I'm in the same world everyone else is in. And I, I live this stuff and write about it and teach about it, but I have to practice, you know, every day, you know? So yeah. yeah, thanks for sharing that part. Well, I'm sure we'll come up with another topic to, to talk about in the future. And I will look forward to that. And thank you so much. I really, this is such great information today. So I'm, I'm really excited about this podcast. So thank you, Kane, and so much love to you today. Thanks, Nika, for having me. Look forward to another one. <laughs> thank you for joining us at the You Are Love podcast. For more episodes just like this, please subscribe. This is Nika, and I'm wishing you a beautiful day.